I'm talking with Alfred. Alfred is the COO of Zappos, and we're going to have, a, I think, an interesting conversation with Alfred. There's a couple of topics I want to talk with him about. So, uh, Alfred, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You want to tell us a little bit about who you are and your background and where you've come from? Sure. Uh, I'm Alfred Lynn. I'm currently CEO at Zappos.com, where you are... Um, the one of the largest, uh, if not the largest, retailer of shoes, handbags, and apparel uh, on the Internet. And uh, we really think of ourselves as first and foremost a service company and uh, and then a service company that just happens to sell these products. Uh, my background, I was uh, born in Taiwan, raised mostly in New York City, and then went off to college in, Boston, in the Boston area and then Came out to the Bay Area for graduate school, and um, and then uh, over time got sucked into a bunch of internet companies. I first uh, met our CEO Tony Shea um, in college. He was running a a pizza business in our dormitory, and uh, he used to go down to his uh, uh, pizza pizzeria and basically buy lots of pies and take it upstairs and sold off by the slice and uh, that's how we met and uh, after we after uh, we left college he came out to the Bay Area and started Link Exchange and I joined about a year after and 17 months later after I joined um, uh, we sold the company to Microsoft for uh, $265 million and then after that we raised a small fund um, from friends and family of Link Exchange and uh, started investing in a bunch of internet startups. Um, and uh, Zappos happens to be w- one of our investments. And over time, both Tony and I ended up thinking that this was got the most opportunity and it was also the most fun to work at. And so both of us are both at Zappos. That's a, you, you've, you've given that speech before. <laughs> uh yeah, probably. People ask where you know how we met and all that kind of stuff, but yeah. That's I mean you you just answered like every single question I was going to ask without prompting, so uh, <laughs> nice job. So um, tell me you, you came from Taiwan, so uh, you, I mean when, how old were you when you left? Uh, I believe I was around six or seven. Um, uh, old enough to remember that I was not born in this country, but not uh, not old enough to really uh, uh, get a good sense of where I lived and, or anything like that. I go back to Taiwan, and my parents would point out the school I went to and the neighborhood. I'm like, yeah, I don't remember any of this. <laughs> and what do you think of the the whole uh, China Taiwan thing? Let's go China Taiwan stuff. You know, that's it's an interesting thing, right? If for those who understand the difference between Taiwan and China, and you know, there's a group in Taiwan in Taiwan that want to be separated from China and be independent from China, and uh, there's a group of people who left China and call, and uh, and want Taiwan to be part of China. It's it's one of those things where uh, I don't have much of an opinion because um, I think a lot of it has to do with I wasn't raised there and born there. Um, my parents are Taiwanese, and uh, and uh, they, you know, they have plenty of friends who live in the United States and go back to Taiwan and vote uh, in every single election. And my philosophy on that is, well, that's kind of wrong because yes, you are a citizen of Taiwan and you do have the right to vote, but if you're not going to endure any of the consequences of voting there. I feel like that's a little bit off. And I, I agree and, completely, and I don't vote in Australia, even though I could. 
I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think I don't think I have that right. I, don't, I haven't lived there since 1992. Right. So that's that's how I feel about the situation. I don't, and I don't. I particularly don't have a lot of um, insight into you know pros and cons of being part of Taiwan or China. Um, I think from from a practical point of view, I think uh, I'm, I'm very much a pragmatist, and most people don't want to be associated with um, a communist country. For those who want Taiwan to be independent. Uh, they want to be a separate zone if they are a part of China. Um, and I think the world is becoming a more and more unified place. So hopefully nobody in, you know, a hundred years will care very much about that. We, we're becoming a very global world and citizenship is important from the standpoint of where, where you live and also from where you come from. But other than that, hopefully the whole world can just get along. Yeah, fair enough. So, um, so you're originally from Taiwan, and then Tony's originally from mainland China, isn't he? No, I think he was born. His parents are from mainland China, but he was born in in uh, in Marin, I think. In, oh no, he was born in maybe Chicago. He was born in the states. He grew up yeah, mostly he, in Marin. He grew up in Chicago. Didn't he grow up in Chicago? In, uh, I think he was born in Chicago and grew up mostly in in uh, in the Bay Area. But I, we can go check on that. And so, I mean, does, does that did that make it easy for you guys to connect? Um, I think when we first connected, it was very nonchalant. He happened to be selling pizza, and uh, and and I wanted pizzas. And then, you know, we we kind of knew each other and got to know each other over time. I don't think we particularly liked or dis disliked each other when we first met. It was kind of a, just an apathetic kind of thing. I think, you know, what has what we've discovered about ourselves is uh, we kind of attack problems uh, from different vantage points but tend to get to the same conclusion and that provides uh, reassurance that we, we came to the right uh, decision. And then the second thing is it's good to see the different vantage points and the different sort of ways of looking at the problem. Um, Tony's very creative and entrepreneurial guy and you know, with the pizza, and so he started the pizza business, and, you know, the joke is I arbitrage away any of the risk and sold it by the slice, right? And, um, so, oh, so you bought his pizzas and resold them? Yeah, we, I took it upstairs and sold it by the slice, so, you know, <laughs> oh, he made... I didn't realize that. He, too, he made, two, he made, uh, he made two, $2 or $3 an hour, and I made 2 or $3 in a minute, so... Uh, but he spent more time, so he he ended up making more money, and I ended up making less. So, <laughs> but you you didn't have risk. Yes, that's true. No, but I wasn't aware of that. Did he know you were doing that? No, I, I mean I didn't do it extensively. Right, I took the, I had a large college room group, and you know basically every night took up two or three pies and. Um, you know, every one of the guys would just, you know, eat two or three pizzas and they leave me money and like, hey, I'm always like, I always have a little bit more and they're like, fine, keep it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, what brought you, so you, you had the whole pizza thing going on. You hung out a little bit, but not really. And, you know, you're like, whatever, he's just the dude running the pizza place. How did you guys end up working together in your first, I mean, he hired you into Link Exchange. Was that it? Yeah. Um, I think, when he started Link Exchange, he uh, needed someone to sort of look after the the financials and the books and to sort of create financial models and 
And, you know, he just happens to know me, and uh, I was always really, I, I was an applied math major in college, and I was actually uh, at getting a PhD in statistics at the time, and thought that I would be, you know, good with numbers, and I'd be like, well, I'll do it part-time when he first started, and, and over time, I just got more and more sucked in and believed in the business of link exchange. Um, I think it was kind of, I, I think everything ha in life happens for a reason, but it, there's a lot of randomness in, in a lot of this stuff, because originally, when I was in school, um, I was, you know, studying applied math. I always thought maybe I'd go on to Wall Street. I was very good with numbers, and, and uh, I took a class uh, at uh, at Harvard um, by Robert Merton, and he ended up being um, won the Nobel Prize for continuous time finance. But he was also one of the uh, large uh, heads of uh, long-term capital, and uh, he advised me to go get my PhD if I really wanted to work in the hedge fund business. And here, and you know. I just remember in 1998-99 time frame when all the issues with the meltdown related to uh, the economic crisis back then um, had a lot to do with Russia and long-term capital melting down. And uh, I was like, great, well, good thing I didn't end up working in the hedge fund business and I'm working at Link Exchange. Um, and today we're certainly happy that I'm not working in the financial meltdown of the hedge fund business and I'm working at Zappos. Yeah, totally. Although you might have already cashed out with your 100 million by by then anyway. Yeah, well, maybe. It's it's hard to tell. I think a lot of the people are uh who work in the hedge fund business that get caught up in it and, you know, want to reinvest everything that they can in it and and keep going. And I think most entrepreneurs do that because they love taking the risk. They love like they love the ride and uh Yeah. And the ride is, I, I, yeah, the ride's a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. So, um, <clears throat> how well did you know each other at the point that Tony extended you the offer at, uh, to come and work at, at Link Exchange? I think we we knew each other from a standpoint. We kind of have hung out together, and uh, you know, we had lots of mutual friends in common, um, and. Uh, we knew that, you know, he was. I knew he was smart. He knew I was smart, and kind of got along fine. So, um, it and it was, you know, we kind of did certain similar things. He likes to go to movies, and um, we used to go. Uh, we used to see movies a lot uh, with either mutual friends, and so we would see each other every now and then. But didn't know each other super well. But um, but I think working at Lake Exchange was our first real experience where we got to know each other. And what position were you being brought into Link Exchange for? Uh, I was uh, I was VP of Finance and Administration there. So he, were you? Was that was that the CFO, VP Finance? I mean, you were, you were the finance became the finance guy. Yeah, I, I guess it eventually was. I was acting CFO for a while, and uh, right before we sold the company, we were thinking about taking the company public. So we hired someone who who, used, who was more of a professional CFO. And but when we hired him, and we got prepared to be a public company, uh, a few months later, the uh, the market kind of tanked a lot significantly, and we decided to pull our offering and uh, sold the company to Microsoft. Right, and so um, so you weren't initially brought in to to run all the finance stuff. You were brought in as an important finance guy, but not the finance guy. So it sort of things things didn't start 
out like, hey, you're going to be my key partner right away. So it kind of it evolved into that. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, because well, there are a few things. One was I was still in graduate school and I was trying to do, I was trying to work part time and um, and go to school part time, and then. I uh, started to do less school and more full-time work. Um, we didn't have a CFO. I was basically the the key finance person until we hired the CFO, which was in the last three to six months of uh, Link Exchange's life. But uh, never really needed someone who uh, who had experience because everything was taken care of. So you were really you were there to help Tony, but you were one of sort of 10 or 20 guys that worked with Tony to help get things done there. Would that sound accurate? Uh, sure, yeah. yeah. But then it's, I mean, and there, you know, obviously the reason I'm asking all these questions is is it's because it's evolved into you guys, are the, the, the two of you are the driving force behind Zappos, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're not just the COO, you're also chairman. Um. Well, I think we we discovered through Lake Exchange that we work well together, and that's the reason why we started uh, Venture Frogs, the, the investment fund together, and uh, and now we're both at Zappos together. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you sort of for you, I guess it's no big deal, but you you guys have found something really important um, in a lot of the stuff that I've seen for successful stories in Silicon Valley um, and elsewhere. They started by two guys, right? Hewlett Packard, two guys, Apple. Uh, Microsoft, even Oracle, um, or Google, all there's just some balance between two guys, and you're you're the key guy with Tony now, and I, I find that absolutely fascinating. So I'm really interested to understand how did you, how did it evolve into becoming where you're at now? Well, actually, I think you know if we get back to some of um, some of the things that uh, we're we're really interested in in terms of creating culture and. Uh, and uh, one of the books that we've read recently is Tribal Leadership, and uh, they they propose that uh, three guys, three people is not necessarily guys meaning man, males, but um, three people together actually works a lot better. It's it's a triad, and uh, and we actually um, really do abide by that because we have Tony, we have. Fred Mosler and me, uh, who are the, basically the three guys that balance each other out at, at Zappos. Yeah, and I guess you could say Google's another example of that. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't name. I mean, in, in, in what I've seen with companies getting started, though, they tend to be started by two. Right? You brought you brought um, Fred in later, but in sort of the initial beginnings to get things going to where you're at now, they start with two. Or, or am I incorrect on that? I don't know if you if that's I don't I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I think there are people in the background that uh, may never really you know sort of get the full credit, even though they're an important part. Um, I, I don't know. It's basically you know you may start with you guys, but you know, and they are the founders, and but. Uh, there might be some more important people behind the scenes that uh, are never highlighted, and that's fine because I think um, those people are fine with it. And um, and uh, so I think you need a much deeper investigation into how organizations get formed um, and how successful they are. Well, sure. Um, I'm I'm just interested to hear your story as well. Um, it's just it's just something that I've noticed in in, in reading reading books. But if if you have any other areas to point to, I'd be interested to see those. I wouldn't disagree. You obviously got to have a strong team, but I just I keep seeing this. It's two guys. 
I could, I could probably give you 20 examples of it. Well, I, I think, you know, I think it's... You know, those two guys may get a disproportionate amount of the credit. It's never just two guys. I mean, at Zappos, all the ideas don't come from me or Tony or, or Fred. It comes from everybody in the company. And I think that the sign of a successful company is maybe a, a group of people who decide that they're going to leverage that, um, and maybe that's really the key to the success as opposed to the two guys who come up with all the ideas. Fair point. Um so why would you? Do, I mean, do you, would you say that? There, why does it seem that there's always two guys that seem to be behind the success of these companies? Even ones like, for example, Microsoft. It was Bill Gates and and I've forgotten the other guy's name, Paul Allen. Um, and Paul Allen obviously dropped out. But why did those two guys get the most credit for it, rather than all the others that were part of it? Uh, I think because they founded the company. Um, look, I mean, if it was just those two guys, they could not have built the company that 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 was created. It couldn't. They couldn't have created the wealth that was created. No, they founded the company. They were the guys who sort of took the risk and um, put in the initial uh, capital, set up the the company. Um, but really, if they didn't have a group of people underneath them that were really willing to help and build something, they wouldn't be as successful. Uh, it's more than just, I really think it's more than just having a strong team underneath you. It, 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 it really means that you're going to think about the business holistically and think about the whole organization. So you need your good leadership team, but you're saying obviously a critical key part of that is having an overall good integrated team that, that helps support those, those two leaders. Exactly. I think, you know, and it's just, it's one of those things related to that you, that you hear a lot. You're never as good or as bad as the press says you you are. And I think the success and failures of, uh, of companies often get blamed on the CEO and the CFO of the company. But really, it's, it can't, it's not just, it's not all their, their success and it's not all their faults. Um, and I think that's something that I, um, that we tend not to highlight as much. Uh, I, I really think it was great that when Google, for example, when they became the Fortune 100 top companies to work for, they didn't showcase in their in their article the CEO or Larry and Sergey. They they sort of showcased a whole bunch of people um, in their organization and their company. I think that's that is really important. A, a company that recognizes that the business is built by the people on the front lines is going to be much more successful than a company who thinks that it's all about the leader. Okay. Do you think if um, I talked to you when you were at Link Exchange, you would have said the same thing as you're saying today? I think probably um, probably not. I think we, you know, everybody has to grow. Um, and, you know, when when you're younger, you tend to think you can do everything yourself. Uh, when you get to to be a little bit older and wiser in, in your understanding of what how important the whole organization is, then come to the realization that uh, you have to hold people accountable and you want them to do a good job. But at the end of the day, there are lots of things that we do that make the organization uh, either healthy or not healthy, and um, that actually has much more leverage than trying to get one or two or three or four people to be productive. Um, and that's been hard to learn. I mean, at Zappos, we have 
1,600 employees? Do I spend my time leveraging their or creating things, um, leveraging the 1,600 employees, or do I spend my time trying to just work with the three or four or five direct reports that I have? And you know, it's it's got to be a balance. But uh, I think good leaders like that sort of think about the organization as well is uh, are going to be a lot more successful. What are some of the other ways that you feel you get leverage like that throughout the company? Well, I think you know, obviously, we we when we when we talk to our employees at uh, New Hire Orientation, we tell all of them that this company is well. You know, Tony, Fred, and I are you know the three guys that sort of appear to be on the top of the organization. Um, it's this company does not. Uh, just implement our ideas, and if it's our ideas uh, that, that that get implemented, and only our ideas, those are three good ideas in a day, a month, or a year, whatever time frame you think you come up with good ideas. If we leverage all 1,600 employees right now, then uh, we're going to get uh, 1,600 good ideas that we can run with. So we tell everybody that are in new hire orientation that if they're passionate about something, you should just take ownership of it and run with it. And that allows uh, people to sort of be accountable for for things that they're passionate about. And we also tell them that if you have if you're passionate about something with sixteen hundred employees, I'm sure you can find twenty to thirty people who are also passionate about it and you can run with it. And that's how we can Ron Zappos as a very nimble company uh, and almost like a startup when it's gone past the startup stage. So um, let's say some guy that's just been in the company for a month has some great idea that he's really excited about. So the, the first filter is that, okay, he can be really excited about it, but he's got to get 20 other guys on side to, get to back him. Is that right? Well, I think it just kind of it kind of runs runs along. I'm passionate about it. Let me go talk to let me do some stuff. Let me talk to like more people about it. And if it's a good idea, people will want people want to be part of uh, winning teams. So if it's a good idea, it kind of self-selects. People will be like, "That's a great idea. I want to be part of that." Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be. You have to go get 20 guys together. Um, but it does sort of. It does sort of. It's kind of Darwinistic in the sense that if it's a good idea, people want to be part of it, and it naturally just builds upon itself. We've had plenty of things that kind of started out being crazy ideas that um, get built up over time and uh, become bigger and bigger things for Zappos. Culture is very very important to us, and uh, every day we have little minor tweaks that get built upon each other. Um, for example, like we we started these parades. The first time someone wanted to create a parade and just parade through, uh, it was kind of it was kind of weird. Um, it wasn't well put together, and but got like a few people to want to parade and say hi to people or throw candy at people and just bring up people's spirits and we thought that yeah that's kind of cool in a way but kind of weird and and these parades just build upon itself and now people take it very seriously their themes behind each parade uh and they really lift up people's spirits we have we have we decided that we were going to take some uh tenant improvement money when we started moving into the space and instead of getting it from the landlord and then giving it to an architect to sort of clean things up or contractors to clean the space up and have a very sterile 
work environment, we asked, well, can we just take that money and give it to some of our teams? And each individual team just decided to, uh, we said to them, go go create uh, a conference room uh, the way you would like it created, and and uh, so didn't really cost it didn't cost us any money. The team loved doing it because they took a lot of pride and ownership in creating their own personal workspace, and at the same time it was a ton- it was a team building experience for all the. Uh, for all these teams that were doing it. And now every single time we move into a new space, uh, you know, sort of the sort of the standards get raised uh, and we just give people a small budget of $500 to design each each room. Uh, so they, those are some of the ideas that we, you know, sort of want people to just take and run with and foster and, and build it into bigger and bigger things and bigger and bigger events. Is that, would you consider that to be a little bit like along the lines of Google's 20% time? Um, I don't know if it's like it's like that because we're not we're not really saying spend twenty percent on your time or research and development on what you want to do. Um, there's um, there's certainly uh, we want people to express their creativity uh, in a way that adds to the culture. Um, so. Their tw- Google's 20% time is about uh, maybe their culture is about innovation, so they want people to spend 20% of their time on um, on R&D. Here, we want people to spend time in- investing and improving the culture. So, in in a sense, yes, uh, but I think the objective is very very different. We want people to spend 10 to 20% of their time with uh, with their fellow employees, with people from different departments because we believe that uh, the investment in the culture will more than pay for itself. What do you say to all the people who look at that and comment and say, well, you know, you know, there can be a bunch of crazy kids running around, but someone's going to get sued at some point, so there's going to be some sort of issue that's going to come along, and, you know, modern corporation just can't work like that. What's your response to that? I think I think uh, I think that's very uh, old school and very uh, risk averse and conservative in their viewpoint. I, I think in this day and age, uh, everybody's going to have a blog. Everybody's going to express themselves in a, in their own way, and uh, I think people are actually less uh, inclined to sue you if you let them express themselves in their own way, and more inclined to sue you if you try to restrict them. Um, and so, uh, you know, and 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 so, you know, you can you can debate about that. But the one thing that is not debatable really is that we become a much much more transparent uh, society, especially the younger generations. Things that we think are crazy as 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 people who are now maybe not that old, but in their thirties or forties. You know, the younger generation have no problems telling people what they're doing this weekend on on Facebook or Twitter, uh, and just letting the world know this is what they're who they are and, and uh, who what they're like. And you're not we you, you're not going to be able to to stop that. And I think the level of transparency that the company can provide and allow employees to express themselves is a key way for for the company to have many, many more advocates for the company than than just themselves. And, um, you, I mean, you had some layoffs, and when your layoffs happened, that was immediately reported real-time on Twitter. Uh, that's about as transparent as you get. That's almost uncomfortable. Yeah, I, 
you know, we we um, we really believe in being transparent um, and trying to make sure that everybody knows about what's going on inside the company. Obviously, um, nobody likes uh, talking about layoffs and doing layoffs, but wanted to do it in a way that um, we told the affected employees first, and then after that, uh, they started twittering out, and Tony uh, twittered out that he was going to send an update immediately after everybody was told and uh, that were affected and he posted the he sent an email to the whole company about our decision why we did it and why we're doing it in a proactive manner and then he posted it on the blog and twittered it out to his I think he has 17,000 followers uh, just the overwhelming response when you because we track Zappos on twitter.zappos.com the overwhelming response by affected employees existing employees people who have been following Zappos have, was extremely, extremely positive relative to what most uh, layoff announcements uh, result in. Um, and part of that is because we're trans- transparent, but it just goes back to what we were talking about before, where we really believe in trying to take care of uh, people and to wow them uh, while, while our employees are customers, our partners, and our investors, and we we'll want to give all of them complete transparency. Um, we, When we talk to uh, young managers at Zappos and talk about how we manage differently, one of the things we talk about is wowing employees on their way out. And uh, we think that's very, very important because Zappos' business has been built on repeat customers and word of mouth. And even if an employee leaves, they... Uh, have a lot of influence over their friends and family members, and we want them to continue to be good, uh, to, to be good Zappos customers and be happy sell, uh, buying from Zappos. And who knows, even if the employee that is affected doesn't work out at Zappos, that doesn't mean they don't have friends and family members that would work out at Zappos later on um, in time. And so we always believe in doing the right thing. Yeah, well, and your layoff plan, I mean, normally companies do two weeks and then that's it and, and sometimes not even that and you guys are paying isn't it two months of severance plus six months of, of Cobra something like that yeah we we decided that we were going to be proactive we you know right now this is you know right this second when we sort of got all the information about uh, our performance not just our performance but our, our view of what's going to happen in the economy um, you know we're doing really well relative to most retailers in October, the, the the same store sales that we sort of looked at was um, we were still growing and growing you know significantly while some of the uh, retailers were had negative year-over-year comps and so wanted to be proactive and if we if we believe that the economy is going to be hard next year we wanted to make sure that we take care of our employees so uh, this layoff was a trying to be proactive and trying to take care of our employees that were affected. So we've decided to basically pay them through the end of 2008 and um, pay um, for six months of COBRA coverage for their insurance, medical insurance, um, um, so that they're adequately taken care of through 2008. And this thing is more expensive for us in 2008. It doesn't reduce our expenses in 2008, but hopefully it helps us be more flexible in 2009. And the real key thing about this was we wanted to make sure our employees are taken care of throughout the holiday season and not have to worry about it. I think it is kind of... Um, 
I wouldn't say cruel and unusual because companies need to take care of themselves too, but um, most of most of the reasons why we try to be proactive is we would we don't want our employees to end up in a situation where we have to do a layoff and we can't do very much for them to give them any runway. So uh, while we have runway, we want to make sure that our employees had runway as well. Now, obviously, the, the concept of, of wowing um, all different partners, employees, um, and, and different um, companies you work with is, is, is a good and, and, and a nice one. Um, at some level, you've got to be uh, taking into account also you've got to negotiate with different people, and you're going to have a lot of people coming to you for different things all the time, and you can't, you can't do everything for everyone, and you can't be everything for everyone. And at some, at some times, you do have to be able to step away and say no. I mean, how do you balance that and still feel like you're giving people a, a wow experience? I think that's the thing about wowing people. Wowing people never is never about necessarily just spending more on them. Um, I think it is about a lot has to do with showing people that you care. Um, things that seem super efficient so that you can hire uh, less well-trained people or train them less to do customer service, for example, having a script um, – may be easier to train someone to read a script than to train someone to be to sound like they're caring but think about the consequences of that and whether you feel like you the 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 representative on the other side really cares about you or not um and so you know, I, I think when, when someone genuinely cares about you, you can have the same policies and procedures, one read to you and another person who puts it in their own words and jokes with you on the phone. I'm sure you're going to be wowed by the person who really cares and is providing you their undivided attention and trying to connect with you versus someone who is reading a script. Um, and so it really isn't that much different. It's just a level of expectation that we be real people and be transparent. What about, say, let's say a partner like Nike, for example, or a partner that's, that's selling you a lot of shoes. Um, you're obviously, you've got to negotiate as, as strong a possible deal as you can with them um, and that's, that's as beneficial to you as you can, or, or do you not? I mean, you want, to, you, want to, you want to deliver them a lot of volume, but you also want to make sure you get as good a deal as you can because then you can do... Better profit, better prices, provide better service, and everything else, right? Yeah, we want to do all those things, and we believe in trying to make sure that it's a win-win situation for everyone. And if we, if we, if we get better uh, terms and better discounts, we can buy more and we can sell more. Uh, so we try to put it in a win-win situation as opposed to a zero-sum game. Um, I think you know, in the same same way with with. Uh, with all of the relationships that we have, we want we want to be friendly and be friends with these folks, but you know also recognize sometimes business is business. Um, and so one of the things that we think uh, we do probably better than most companies is we want to wow people on their way out, even if they don't work out for us, because you know what Th- that is a clear sign that we did something right when we can still be friends after we let someone go. Um, we can still be friends even though we have to have hard negotiations um, in a partnership. We can still be friends when, you know, the investor is not very happy with 
the way we're doing X, Y, and Z, but, you know, we kind of listen to each other and understand each other's perspective, and we both end up knowing that we're, we both love the company and want to do the right thing for the company. I think having that sort of connection uh, is some is often lost in, in our corporate world nowadays of just striving for pure results. Uh, and at the end of the day, having better communications, better connections, whether it's with your employees, your customers, your partners, or your investors, uh, actually allows you to cut to the chase faster uh, and get to the real details of the points faster than trying to be uh, mean-streaked mean and think of everything as a zero-sum game. What do your what do your investors think about the the culture of Zappos? I think our investors are um, you know our investors are invest you know Mike Moritz is on our board he's from Sequoia Capital they've invested in some uh, companies that are, have been very very successful some of them with very very funky cultures like Google and PayPal and and Yahoo I think I think. They certainly believe that culture is important, um, but they also care about financial results and driving results. So, so long as we do both, that's that's great. And we hold that standard to our employees. We it's not just about the culture. You also have to perform your your job as well. And uh, you know, we hold our employees to that standard too. Um, so it's not that much different than than um, than what we're trying to achieve here. Um, now, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me is that the, the way that Zappos came about, um, so you and Tony, you, you, you venture frogs, you had some money, um, you invested in a bunch of companies, you effectively almost had an incubator. I mean, you had a bunch of entrepreneurs going out and starting stuff for you. Um, you got to see the results from a lot of different companies at once in a lot of different areas. Um, it was almost a, like a split testing to see, see where, the, where the things are performing best. And then you were able to then move on to the one that um, seemed to have the, the the results that you were looking for. Would you agree with that as a summary? I think it was a combination of both a fund and an incubator. Not every single uh, company that we invested in was in our incubator. We did see we did have some companies go through our incubator, and Zappos was incubated at, at uh, in our incubator, and it was the most successful one. And we did sort of see. Uh, why it was successful and was able to uh, sort of see how quickly it was growing relative to the other incubated companies. But, um, you know, we, we also invested in a bunch of other companies and, um, you know, some of them, you know, some of the companies that we spent the most time on um, weren't necessarily because they were the most promising um, in the early days because they needed the most help. Um, right, and, and, and those are the ones that suck out your time. Um, we yep. need to cut your losers and run with the winners, which is obviously what you guys have done. Yeah, and at this stage, you know, both Tony and I are fully focused on Zappos because we believe this is going to be the biggest winner. Um, but, in, you know, there's certainly we've had some good hits along the way as well, and uh, we're pretty appreci- we, we were pretty lucky. I mean, considering that we had no experience in the investment business, we consider ourselves very lucky. We consider ourselves very lucky for being at Zappos. Um, so. Very lucky. So, I mean, you had a you were in a pretty fortunate position because you, you guys were coming in as successful entrepreneurs. You had money. You had a brand name. You got some of the, the best ideas and, and talent that came towards you for for your incubator. And then, so you you had some of the, the best opportunities coming your way, and you were then able to run with the best of the best opportunities. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I, I think it's uh, sure. I think it's certainly um, a good summary. But you know, back in 1999, uh, there were a lot of people trying to do the same thing, and uh, not sure that we were always presented with the best opportunities. But we try to make as much out of them as possible, as we always do. Mm-hmm. No, well, so the reason I ask this, I mean, you, you know, you, you took it. You obviously have done well. It's not. It's not a. It's not a, an accident or a coincidence. You've done well. Um, how would you suggest someone starting out today if it didn't have the, those kind of the reputation and the resources and the stuff that you guys have had, as well as the opportunity to see inside multiple companies at once and go with a winner? How would you suggest someone starting today um, could build a company like Zappos? Well, first of all, I would start out with um, with trying to figure out what you're really, really most passionate about. Tony talks about chasing the, the vision and not the money. And and the reason for that is because business, it doesn't matter how quote-unquote successful or people think you're, you're successful. Business is hard. Um, and you're going to go through rough times and hard times. We're, we're entering in an economy where it's going to be hard for everyone. But if you don't love what you do, it gets gets really hard to get up in the morning and go in and try to fix problems each and every day. And so you really need to think about whether uh, what what kind of things you would really really love to do, um, and be okay with not making money right away. Tony talks about not making money. You should find something that you love and and want to do for the next ten years without making a dollar. Um, and that's kind of a harsh way of looking at it, but think about it from the standpoint that, you know, if you start a company at any point point in time, you know, you might have a, a bunch of success, but business cycles are in 10-year increments. So 10 years is kind of, I don't know if he thought about this, but 10 years is kind of a thing where if it can survive 10 years and beyond, then that's, that's a true test of whether a company is going to survive. Not the first year or the second year, because even though a lot of uh, businesses fail in the first or second year, really the, the time-tested battle is having to go through a business cycle. Um, and I think it, it's a harsh reality, but if you can't go through that uh that time frame doing something you love and you are only chasing the money then you 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 run the risk of it not working out for you and you would have hated your life for the last 10 years who wants that so do something you're passionate about and you really care about that you want to get up in the morning um something that you that, that can survive um uh, tough business cycles what else yeah. would you say yeah, you know the other thing that you mentioned that you you want to sort of you know we had the luxury of having an incubator and looking at a whole bunch of businesses and you know you, there's no reason why you can't do the same thing uh, even if you have you're starting from from uh, scratch and the reason is lots of companies will have you know will say lots of things about their business and you can learn from those anything they talk about um, and so just be open minded. And you can be open-minded by reading lots of articles or books about business. You can be open-minded by talking to lots of entrepreneurs and thinking about uh, hearing about their what has made them successful and, and try to incorporate that into your business. And the joke I, I make fun of at Zappos is we don't really have that original or interesting ideas here. We just kind of incorporate a whole bunch of ideas uh, from all the people that we've met, 
Uh, and we don't copy things because copying them into your company don't tend to work. You have to modify them. You kind of take people's ideas and you modify them and you, you make them better and make them fit in your company. And if you're willing to well, be open-minded... I mean, if you look at what you guys are doing, you're selling shoes. I mean, that's really boring, dude. <laughs> I mean, really. But you guys have made it really interesting. We try, um, and you know we sell we sell stuff. I mean, basically, we say we sell we sell you know simple stuff to to the masses, and you know we try to do it in a way that provides great service. Um, we want to provide great service to the masses. That's the only tweak that we're putting in there, really. At the end of the day. Um, if you wanted to simplify our business now, obviously nobody, we're not going to talk to everyone and the press in, in such low level terms, but if you really wanted to think about it, yeah, our business is pretty boring and we're not. But you've made it not, really interesting and you've got people really excited about it. It's incredible. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a, a sign that make, putting in small tweaks and making things fresh and different sounds just sounds exciting relative to something that you know in and of itself, as you put it, is kind of boring. Um, and so, just if you're open-minded to, to thinking like that, just making small tweaks every single day, uh, I think you have a very good chance of being successful. So. All right. Now, so another another topic that um, you and I have talked about one time when we were hanging out is um, you were you were talking you were just saying some really interesting stuff about uh, your views on finance um, and handling risk and and sort of thinking like a a finance guy in terms of taking taking high levels of risk and uh, making sure that you get reward for those and I think you 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 were, you were tying that into some some stuff on Wall Street and the risk there and maybe uh, is there, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of your views on on finance and how you you manage the finances. Sure. Um, well, we're talking about specifically. Um, it started out with you know CFOs tend to not get a lot of respect because they run everything by the numbers. They they don't have a lot of belief in necessarily any single business and and why is that and all that kind of stuff. And you know, you just the the sort of natural sort of mentality of most CFOs is to control and reduce risk and and those go hand in hand they believe that you know your your job is to reduce risk as much as possible they, a lot of them come from the accounting world where you're trying to reduce any risk in terms of stating uh your financial statements in in an improper way and that's all good discipline and it's great and we need to have that and there's a base there's a fundamental basis of making sure that you have the right numbers so you can operate the business um, but I think the the next level of it is to just think about it as not from a control standpoint I think a lot of management teams um, have issues with their CFO because it can CFOs are trained to control as much as possible and by having control, you reduce risk. So they go hand in hand, but I think the the real testament of a a great CFO is probably the the ability to assess risk and be able to sort of take that level of risk. And the other thing I would say is don't you know this is not this in this world environment. Everybody is trying to reduce risk, but reduce it in a smart way. You don't want to take unnecessary risks, but take Take the amount of risk that you've reduced in the unnecessary portion and invest it in risk that will actually add to the business. Take risks that will add, will create value. Um, we often 
by training becomes most CFOs are risk averse. We just take unnecessary risk out of the equation, but we don't necessarily let the business reallocate that uh, risk level to things that are good projects that are going to add a tremendous amount to the business in the future. Could you maybe give an example of that, where you've done that? Um, sure. It's, you know, you, you kind of, you know, the joke really is that um, between me and Tony is that I try to help the operations uh, and become more and more efficient, and he, his job is to spend all the efficiency that we have. Um, that's a joke, but the reality of the situation is things that are waste you should cut out and make and reduce the amount of money that you spend uh, in unnecessary uh, stuff and make things better and and all of that good stuff. And then you should take some of that and invest in research and development ideas that will build more business in, in the long run. And we we certainly do that. And look, you know, lots of interesting ideas that have gotten a lot of buzz don't take a lot of money. We often talk about, you know, starting small and staying focused and letting the numbers tell us whether we should invest more or not. So our entree into category expansions all started out that way. They either, there was an advocate, whether it was a customer or a employee or a brand partner who's, that says, hey, I think you should really, really uh, get into this product category. Um, and we start, we say, sure, you know, if someone's very passionate about it, we let them run with it, give them a little bit of amount of money to go buy some inventory for that. And if the category uh, gets traction, we'll invest more. Um, so all of our product category expansions came from whether it was a customer or an employee or a brand partner that said we should get into that, into that category. Um, Twitter. Um, Tony was pretty passionate about Twitter. It doesn't cost a lot of money to set up the twitter.zappos.com site, but just now it has a huge following. We have about 400 employees that are on Twitter, uh, and um, that has helped us tremendously in terms of getting some some buzz and uh, and having people think about Zappos not just as a boring e-commerce company, but someone who's also involved with leading-edge social networking and tying it back to e-commerce. No, I mean, if you can, and obviously you don't like this comparison um, particularly, but if you compare Zappos to Amazon, Amazon, to me, I, I don't know that much about them, but it has the feeling of a very corporate, typical, normal sort of company, whereas you guys are doing really, really crazy stuff. Um, and, 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 and you're both, e, e, uh, you know, good-sized e-commerce companies. Right. That's, that's, that's an impressive difference. Right. Um, one of the other things you talked about with finance was compared to Wall Street, like those guys are paid to take calculated risks and the ones that are really good at it are the ones that become billionaires and that's maybe the reason why there's, uh, some of the CFOs are so risk averse because they aren't comfortable with doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, that? I think, I think, um, you know, this is a, this is an interesting time to talk about that, but certainly Wall Street took a lot of risk because they were paid to take risk. Uh, and we have some of the downside consequences of taking too much risk right now with the financial crisis that we have. Uh, but at the flip side, we have most CFOs don't really get paid to they're, – they're not really judged on whether – the companies um, really taking the right level of risk. They, VCFL talks about delivering shareholder value, um, and I think the good ones really do, but most CFOs, their jobs are to um, make sure they have an organization that can close the books, 
plan properly, forecast properly, and tell the street a story about the forecast and historical results. Um, and they're judged, rightly or wrongly, based on their performance of telling that story um, and not necessarily on taking calculated, calculated risks on behalf of the company uh, and to really build short-term, to build long-term value. I, I read recently that the average lifespan of most CFOs is around two to four years. Um, that's not enough, that's just not enough time to take risks on entrepreneurial endeavors. So, um, so if you're judged basically within two or four years, you're in your lifespan to be whether you're a good CFO or not, it just makes it very difficult to sort of try to build a, a brand for yourself around risk-taking and calculated risk-taking. Um, one last question, just between you and Tony. How, how do you – is he is he strong with finances? Uh, do you end up explaining most of the, the finances to him, or is he there studying balance sheets all the time alongside you? I don't think he studies it. He's good with finances. He can read. He can read the financial uh, financial statements. I would say better than most CEOs. Um, and he doesn't just look at um, the P&L um, like I would say most uh, people would. He actually knows how to read a balance sheet and knows how to read a cash flow statement. Um, he's not going to look at every single number and think about the numbers. Um, but I don't think that's his job. I think he's doing a lot more than most. Uh, Tony is a very detail-oriented person as well as being a very creative person, and uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a much more detail-oriented person when it comes to numbers and less detail-oriented when it comes to certain other things. Um, um, so we, there's a good balance there, and um, I think, you know, for any team to work well together, there's got to be a good understanding of what gets covered together and what gets covered individually. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about you'd like to bring up? Uh, no, not the moment, but I think I thank you for uh, for uh, the interview. I had a great time hanging out with you and uh, when you were out here in Las Vegas, so we should definitely do it again. <laughs> we did have a good time. Thanks so much for the interview, Alfred. All right, take care.